Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 162 with my guest, Dan Deacon. This is Dan's second time on the podcast. Um, And I spoke with Dan uh, after the pandemic started, the lockdown, uh, and I wanted to reach out and talk to him again as we approach SOCI. Uh, This is our first time doing an online SOCI, and I wanted to talk to somebody like Dan, who usually enters situations with very little fear. Uh, We talk a lot about that, too. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one who's afraid about <laughs> of how to enter situations these days, but maybe I'm not. I hope this conversation helps you um, see this stuff a little clearer, um, little, maybe a little bit healthier. So hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Dan Deacon. Take care. Bye. I, mean, I, guess, <laughs> I guess you do. Um, well, not not really. <laughs> well, hey, bro. Um, well, it, yes. That's the, my five kegs. <laughs> the world has changed drastically since we last spoke. Um, and I guess my question, I thought of, like we would update and be like, oh, let's, how are we thinking? I think my question might be exactly the same, Dan. That was it. <laughs> that was my question. It was just a face. <laughs> How you I doing? Okay, I mean, well, the other thing too, we're coming up on Soci. Um, we had uh, we've had eleven years of Soci in person, and this is our first sort of online Soci. And I would be lying if I didn't wasn't just if we want to have a prompt to get us going. I'm terrified. I'm really nervous because I feel like it took me eleven years to get even remotely comfortable trying to figure out how to manage, you know, disparate people from all over the country, the world, in two weeks to get them to try to all learn something together as a unit, as a community, um, to all sort of try to see a world in which like ideals could come to fruition in art, in a safe place, in a vacuum, all of that shit, you know, while having to talk about how you're holding a marimba mallet all at the same time, like all of that shit I've barely got good about good at after 11 years. And now I have to do it online. I'm terrible at Mm -hmm. online stuff. I'm terrible at it. And so I'm, I'm pretty good one-on-one, but there's gonna be 50 people staring at me on a zoom screen. So I, just to say, I mean, how many of them do you think you'll actually see? Well, I don't know, but that—that's my point. Is like, I think I'm just—I have a lot. I'm—I'm I'm shocked at how much anxiety I personally. Maybe this is like not a Dan Deacon podcast, but Josh Quill and Therapy 101 here. But I just, <laughs> you know, I want to talk to people who who I perceive as not having fear walking into unknowable situations, and you're one of those people that's been in my life. And I—I I guess I just want to talk to you, like Dan. I'm terrified. <laughs> can you can you give me any sort of advice or help, or what would you do if you were me? Uh, I think it's okay to be terrified. I think I think it's a fine line between uh, anxiety and excitement and anticipation. Mm-hmm. Like the, the the constantly blending of those cups is probably how you're feeling about it. Yeah. And I think the one good thing about uh, right now is that basically every single person on the planet has to improvise. Mm. And the benefit that many of the musicians I know have is that they have practiced improvising. Mm-hmm. Like I always, that sounds like such an oxymoron when I say it, but like, no, it's true. I mean, it's, you got to, it's a skill like anything else, you know? Yeah. And there's no, there's no right way to do what you're about to do. So that simultaneously means there's no wrong way to do it. You'll mm-hmm. refine it down the line, mm-hmm. and just like the first year of Soci, I'm sure you wouldn't do the 11th year the same way as the first because you learned from it. But you don't look back and be like, "I ruined their lives." Like, I have those I thoughts, but I but they're not rational. I mean, it's not a rational. But thought I'm to sure have. there's also aspects of the first year that like could never be recreated in a second year, and that's. I don't know. Like I like. Well, there are I, aspects of the first year that are were absolutely crucial that we couldn't have planned for. That are the reasons the eleventh year were even able to exist at all. Like, you know, and totally. so you're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Is I you know the point? I'm pretty sure it's going to be like a white knuckles ride for you, but I think you'll buy a ticket and do it again. Uh, I just just you know I think just remember that that it's all right to make mistakes. Everyone's improvising. If, if people are still engaging at all, like a lot of people are just checking out. Mm-hmm. And I think the people who are engaging are well aware of the bumpiness of the road ahead. Mm. So I think that makes it the, the audience is a bit more forgiving because everyone is compromising. It's mm-hmm. not like for some reason, just Sosi is all of a sudden zoom. Like right. I talked to filmmakers who 
went through an insane competitive process to sign up for these like residencies and retreats. And now they're all zoom Yeah, and they'll have these like week long, eight hour lectures wherever, like everyone has to get together and like talk about their films. And they're like, in a way it's like so much more intensive because otherwise I'd be like, I want to go down by the lake or I'm just going to work on my script. Yeah. This isn't, it's not, it's not related to what, to what you're about to, to film, but I'm, you know, there's, there's a couple moments where I just like, as you're, as you're tracking the rings of evolution of the way humans react to things or whatever. So the very, when the lockdown happened in the Gal Gadot, like imagine video thing came out where they all were like singing the John Lennon tune and it was all off key and almost universally, universally worldwide it was rejected as like get out of here you know but it was like it was the first like pre-cambrian explosion you know like that like evolutionarily where like everything popped out and had like weird horns and shit and then eventually it settled out and you know those things died mm-hmm. off and i feel like that gal gadot like that poor gal gadot like i don't have any hate in my heart but like that was the very first sort of shot in the thing of like well let's try this and it was terrible but people have gotten better at it I mean, you look at there's Definitely. some there's some sporting events like I watch boxing a lot and fighting and there's no audiences. The fights are better. Like it's really strange. Like almost to a fight, it's like because things are so so distilled down to just the raw. Like you you can't go off of a crowd. It's just your raw talent. And there's something really attractive about it. I, I'm not going to lie. Like it it th- that is the unintended benefit that you would never ever ever see a fight in an empty arena ever. No, never. And like now that's a reality and there's weird things that people are starting to realize about it. So point is, I'm trying to sort of pump myself up. Like there's going to be things about zoom. So that like the first, so we just couldn't predict. And I guess like, it's just those unknowns. I'm 40 now. I'm less, I'm less able to be malleable at 40 than I was at 22 or whatever <laughs> I started this. And so I'm trying to find those, like, where, where am I still cartilage? Where am I still, where can I still bend? And I'm not like calcified bone, you know? Well, I think a lot of your students too, like a lot of them are high school and college age, right? Yeah. Mostly They've college. Been yeah. Zooming all year, man. Mm-hmm. They've been sitting in a zoom with 40 to a hundred people while someone has to be like, I, uh, hold, hold on my, my, my dog. Hold on. I'm getting a pack. <laughs> uh, you know, like I think they're used to, used to that on a level that, that, that you might not. like my fiance is a high school math teacher and I don't know how I, I keep thinking about myself in that situation. I was good at math mm-hmm. and liked math. And I was like, I would be doomed in this situation. Like, how do you learn something as esoteric as math through zoom? But people do it and it's moving along. And I, like I said, you're, you're there. You're not even reinventing the wheel. You're inventing the wheel. <laughs> All of this shit is, there's That's no great. wheel to look like, Sosi is almost like, you know, it's a framework, but mm-hmm. this is going to be a, in embracing the difference and the uniqueness of it, I think can make it more special. Yeah. Like rather than seeing it as a hurdle, but as, as like a, a unique, like, oh, this might be the only time we ever do this. What can we do? What can we, how can distance play into this? How is it a, uh, an asset rather than uh, a deterring factor from people thinking that I, cause you don't want anyone to leave being like, oh, I wish it was in person. You want them to leave the same way that they leave. Sosi being like, I'm so glad I experienced that. And the same way that every group of students is completely different. If you were to one year do it in a different location, like <clears throat> that would be an asset. You wouldn't be like, Oh no, we're doing it here. What are we going to do? Like we're so used to doing it. Princeton, how are we, you know, so like, I don't know. I would, We'd have to I get you one of those blue light bulb things to, to, to break wherever. To smash as soon as I walked in. <laughs> well, find those blue light bulbs in the Zoom and smash them as soon as you get there and it'll really. Well, the, uh, the, the thing I, the thing I, you know, I, um, you know, the word open source has come up a lot. And just to be quite frank, I'm like, I'm not a coder. I'm not in that world on a regular basis, but there is a sort of weird, um, <clears throat> I don't know if egalitarian is the right word where you sort of give up ownership of some part of what it is you feel like you that is being created to allow other people to add into it and make it different. And Wikipedia feels that way a little bit like it's a it's a multiple it's you know, p- many people are building this thing at the same time and often not even speaking with each other. It's like 
things and from you for you or reading what other people wrote right <laughs> yeah i mean how much of your how much of your personal creation like when you make art i know you make you make art in many ways just by yourself dan deacon sometimes for film um but also for large groups of people you did stuff at soci that felt a little bit open source like is that open source mentality something that you where is that in your tool shed in terms of things you lean on um, when you are building stuff I guess it depends on the project, but ultimately everything gets put on the internet. And the moment anything is on the internet, it is no longer yours. It's the internet to decide what it is to, to, you know, erase context again and again and again for it to exist. You know, you know, you, you see someone like, you know, you see like footage of someone like unearthing, like an archaeological dig and it's covered in dust and it looks old. Like imagine if they just like opened up, you know, they're digging and they open up a room and it looks exactly like the Apple store. Like that's what the internet is. But nothing gathers dust or maybe the space jam website gathers dust. <laughs> but um, if you haven't been check out the space jam. Website. Okay. I will. I just, it's, I watched the, uh, the last dance, the, uh, the, the bulls documentary on ESPN and they talk, there's this little chunk where he, where they're like, Michael Jordan went and recorded space jam. And he was like, it was kind of interesting. <laughs> well, the space jam website. You're going to, you're going to love it. But anyway, the internet, like nothing gets covered in dust. Everything could be exactly from today or yesterday. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Like the quality, like all of a sudden, uh, like there's this, uh, insane video art piece called Possibly Michigan. Okay. And it's from the 80s and it's this like sing-songy Casio opera early video art. Mm-hmm. And real experimental out there piece. And for some reason, last month, teenagers on TikTok have been lip-syncing to it. And the connection of how this like really weird, you know, 30 plus year old video art piece in total obscurity has been used as like a meme material in these TikTok videos is just shows like how the, you could never predict the fiber of the internet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when I think about when I'm making something, I can't, uh, I can't really worry about ownership in that way. You know what I mean? So, and I think that bleeds into the whole process of like, I don't know what the world's going to be like tomorrow, let alone in 20 years, but I have to make what I consider to be like the best, truest work now. Mm-hmm. And then just hope for the best with, in regards to how it gets reprocessed and redigested and taken apart and utilized and sampled and being someone who uses samples. Mm-hmm. I also have to embrace like someone might take a snippet of this and make something entirely new from it. And I might hate it, but like, I don't think that that, especially if you can't even begin to tell that it's mine, you know what I mean? Uh, What if you can't, this, the sampling question and um, like uh, appropriation comes up a lot. And like, there's like the fine line between fear and anxiety or anxiety and, and excitement is a thing, but also the fine line between theft and, and sampling is a, is is a final. I see it in the steel band world all the time, like um, in various ways. And I'm just curious for you. I mean, it. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's. It seems like you're a little more open to people taking stuff and using it for their own. I don't want to presume anything here, but some people don't feel that way, and some people just don't even know how to think about it. Like, how do you think about people using your work without permission or sampling or cutting it up? Um, like, how do you personally feel about that, regardless of what anybody else might think? I think it really depends on the scale. Like, if mm. someone's, like, taking a – I spend a lot of time on my sounds, but I also have, you know, dragged over a recording of a percussion ensemble and be like, wow, that Grand Casa sounds great. Why mm. am I going to try to recreate that? This is amazing. Mm. No one's going to be like, is that that hit from the Marcus Like <laughs> – like the, and, and so I think I have like a pretty loosey goosey approach to it, mm-hmm. and I know people have done that with Miami, and I put my stems up there online so people do want to mm. get an isolated sound. One, they can hear how it's made, and two, because I mean, there's no scores 
with most electronic music these days. Everything yeah. is just the recording. And since my recordings are so dense, I kind of want people to be able to hear the, the, you know, the micro aspects of the song, not just the macro finished piece. And I mean, that's to me, like the reason why I like looking at a score or reading a score is it's like reading a book. It immerses you into that world and changes the way you think. It almost gives you like, like reading a score is the equivalent of like gaining musical empathy. Mm. Like you're like, Oh, all right. That's how these ideas came about. And, Oh, I didn't, I can't, I can't hear that voicing in the recording, but now I can because I've seen it written here. Like I'll hear that the, the arrangement will be fuller knowing that this existed where before like the winds were lost. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, this is just, no, 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 I, on it. I wish I had like an, a particular piece. Well, no, one came to mind actually. Let's open that up. One came to mind for me of your piece. Um, I don't remember what we called it. Metals or something from the, from Ghostbuster cook origin of the Riddler. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one of the movements. I would love to talk about that with you a little bit, um, even though that piece of all the pieces of all the, the stuff that we've done together, that one feels like it was like 45 years ago and is probably covered in dust under some sand dune in Egypt right now. <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. but it yeah, the, that the the third movement metals um, originally was a MIDI sampling of all these glockenspiels and metal metal instruments and stuff. And yeah. We were like, man, that would sound beautiful on paper. And you were like, cool. And you were like, Apple P. And you printed the score out of your MIDI thing, and we got it. And I just when you said musical empathy, I was like, well, interesting. Um, I'm curious how much you empathized with us whenever we got that score, and it was like Zappa's The Black Page. And you were like, cool. Here you go, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> like there is a there is a point when you print stuff off of like an electronic score where you do have to empathize with the performers and be like, oh, I'm gonna have to cut some of this. Like this isn't 100%. actually gonna work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I think we cut the tempo by more than half. Oh yeah, totally. Um, and I think something I learned early in music school was I don't know how to play a single instrument, and I'm. Trombone is your main thing, right? I can, I sound can come out of it. I can make sound come out of a trombone. No one's going to be like, oh, if only we could get Dan to play a trombone on our, you know, important thing. Um, but every, every, every play, it, it's like, a, I don't know. It's like a relationship between a director and an actor. Like mm. you got to talk about what's capable, what you can do. The director wants to push it to the limit. The player wants to take it there, but the player also knows the the performance they know like the character and oh my earbuds just made that like you didn't charge us last night sound Uh-oh. um but i mean i'll just switch to a regular mic but yeah every nothing is precious until it's already been on stage once like if it can if it's been done then yeah let's do it again and try it but if it if you're still in the workshopping phase like you can't hold on to anything and be like, but this is my artistic dream. Well, it's like, well, I've had dreams where all of a sudden I'm in the middle of the desert and then I'm at a party and then I'm being chased by the government. Like that, that's a horrible dream. And that dream needs to change my friend. Let's edit that dream. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Editing, editing is vital. And <clears throat> the, each performer knows their instrument and their relationship to it way better than me. And it, it is my job to find like new pathways that maybe someone who is so versed in the muscle mechanics of the vast vocabulary for that instrument, maybe I'll, I'll come up with something that hasn't been in there before, but that's not really the goal. The goal is just to make something that sounds beautiful. And if it's a performance, uh, fun to watch live or entertaining to watch live, which is why I like working with percussionists so much is because, you know, it's like the closest thing to choreography is a percussion ensemble. Yeah. I mean, one of the, you, you have, I feel like you've always prioritized relationships over, um, the sort of dream, like you were talking about. Um, and I'm curious, uh, it seems pretty evident in your live music, you know, in your, I don't want to say the typical genre in which you reside most of the day by, as far as what I can tell. Um, but when you, most of that, let me say that's non-written out music. Like you teach it by rote or you teach somebody what it is you want them to do, right? You're not handing somebody a score mm-hmm. by and large. But with us, with metals, that piece, Ghostbuster Cook, Origin of the Riddler, was kind of both. You gave us sheet music and you taught us stuff by rote. Worked totally fine. But I also remember at that moment you were writing something for like the Winnipeg Symphony or something. 
And oh yeah, Kitchener. Yeah, it was a moment I feel like was where you were sort of having this like crisis of like shit. I have to score stuff out now. Oh my god, like what what does that mean? And I'm curious for you, how did you have to rejigger your view of what a relationship with a performer meant when all of a sudden your time with them in the room was down to like a 20 minute reading? And like, how did you did you or did you even have to reorient the way you saw relationships? No, there was a lot and. It was luckily I had a really great um, conductor to work with, mm. and do you know Edwin Atwater? <laughs> great, great conductor, awesome person, um, and and sort of formed a similar relationship that I have with So, where like he went through the piece and was like, "I don't think this is achievable. Mm. Um, like this." looks cool, but I think we're going to need to change it. Like these, like you, a trumpet cannot play 16th notes at triple forte for two full minutes. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what you think of a human mouth is like, but it is not like that. Mm-hmm. And also broke down just like, some, you know, and I knew this a little bit from like, like reading about cage, but like the politics of an orchestra and mm. like things can't get, too loud by the brass can't be too loud because the woodwinds and the violas are going to hate it. Like, and we just need to balance things out a little bit. And there was this quartet in there for piano, harp, celeste, and vibraphone. And they were great in editing their piece and being like, this is what we can do. And I didn't know anything about like how a harp can't really play chromatically the same way as another instrument that it takes time to switch the pedals so like i worked a lot with the harpist on cleaning that piece out and ultimately like you know it's completely different from the initial vision but so is any you know if i go back to even in my own solo process like it's not like i write something down and i'm like this will never change like (laughs) no matter what like that kind of thinking is kind of portrayed in media which is odd because it's another form of art like that's the artistic process like but in really reality i think that the the best part of the artistic process is the shedding and refining if the initial idea is a piece of wood and you want it to look like a cabinet i've never seen like a beautiful cherry cabinet with just a two by four nailed to the side because that was the initial idea like it's all sanding down and polishing and whittling away and adding of new things and of course, that's going to be accompanied by uh, other people's ideas and ideas that you're getting directly from those other people if they're collaborators or influenced from outside sources, either contemporary or, you know, anywhere within the realm of the past. Was that's the, what creation is. Was there any moment in your collaboration with the orchestra, for example, or even with us where where you did actually stick to your guns and say, like, I know that this I know that this is a crazy thing I'm asking but I want that effect. And it's it like, trust me here. Like I need to, like, where, where did you like, there, you, you know, life is always giving up and compromising, but then at some point, if mm-hmm. you're just always giving up, then it's not actually yours anymore. Like, and there is some, there is some idea that you, that was good. And, and I'm sure you, you're willing to not let go of. And I'm curious for you, like, what are those moments? I guess with that piece with the orchestra, one of them was volume. I was like, amplitude is important. Mm-hmm. Like, there are loudspeakers in this piece and they need to be as loud as the violin section. Yeah. Like they can't be quieter or it's going to actually result in not just a volume difference, but a timbral difference. And there was a section where there needed to be a children's choir, but not necessarily children's choir, just a group of children um, off stage screaming as loud as they could. Mm-hmm. Um and they really were like, why the hell do we need this? But it was, a, I, to me, it was, a, you know, in the middle of the piece, there's just like, ah! like this, like shrieking horror that could have been a recording, mm-hmm. but you could tell it was real. And since it wasn't in the room, people were like, what the hell was that? And uh, that got a little pushback. And looking back now, I probably would be like, yeah, all right, we don't need to do that. Yeah, but... Um, but-, but we had to try it to find out. <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is I, I try to reframe the uh, the the... When, when there's a disagreement in a collaboration and there's a crossroad, there's, there's two ways of working around it. One is to enforce hierarchy and be like, well, it's my way or the highway. And I find that just leads to 
more disagreement down the line. No mm-hmm. one likes to be given an ultimatum or be told like you are subordinate <clears throat> to my call. And when I'm working with a director and they take that sort of stance, I'm just sort of like, are you making a film or are you making a, you know, like some sort of weird power play for yourself in this? Like what, what are you doing? And like, I think bouncing back and forth between the role of like composer whose, whose work is the, is the, the main focus of the piece. And then composer whose work is a small part of a larger thing, either be it like, part of a program showcasing an ensemble or an orchestra or more realistically a film where the score is obviously an important part, but it is not the thing. The thing is Mm -hmm. the film. So it's a lot of picking and choosing your battles, but if I feel strongly about something, I definitely phrase it. But again, I try to not think about it as it's just, it's just a more refined compromise being Mm -hmm. like, all right, well, what is the, if we're at this crossroads, and there's no way to like, you know, whip out a machete and find a new path. How on earth, what is the essence of what I want? What is the essence of what they dislike about my idea? Are those two things, can they be merged in some way? Like mm-hmm. just, just trying to dive deeper in. Cause most of the time it's broad strokes being like, uh, we only have two hands, so we can only play four mouths at once. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Reasonable. Don't need to get new hands for each player. Um, but in regards to like density or large stylistic things, like, yeah, there's ways to be like, I wanted that piece to be performed metals in Ghostbuster Cook, Origin of the Riddler. Um, wanted that to be performed as fast as possible. And I believe it was, you know what I mean? Was it as fast as I would have liked? No. Was it great? Yes. Was it as fast as humanly possible? I believe so. At that point in our, at that point. That's what I'm saying. Like, and since the whole piece was based upon like chance and randomness, maybe now in a future performance, it will be faster. Well, it definitely would be. I mean, that's, that's the thing that happens. Once something is in the zeitgeist, it like, it is by default easier for the next people to pick it up. Like there's just a precedent Mm -hmm. there all of a sudden. And that makes it just a notch easier to pick up and go. And I'm confident that other groups, if they picked up medals would maybe have similar issues or different issues than we had, and they would probably play it faster. But the other thing too, that I think is important to note is like the acoustical phenomenon you deal with on, on your laptop, which then sort of, which then leads to your tempo decisions are completely different than the acoustical phenomenon when you're in the room, which affects your tempo decisions. You know, I remember when we were working on the, the sustain, because with the at the time the virtual vibraphone I wrote on, I would just keep the the release all the way up, and it was constantly sustaining, and it really wouldn't last that long. And you know, there's all these like chord changes and modulations, and like you know, it's supposed to be largely tonal, but there was just like as soon as we started running through it, and I was like, yeah, the hold the sustain pedal down the whole time. It just sounded like a cloud, like a chromatic cloud. And I was like, oh, fuck, what the fuck am I going to do? <laughs> um, but we worked around it. And then the slowing down of the tempo really helped keep the the constantly shifting, you know, tonality without it becoming just like this wash of notes. So in the end, you know, while the, the – and I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I always just collaborate with people who also – collaborate similarly i've never really been in a situation where it's just sort of like nope this is how it's got to be do it this way you know what i mean yeah yeah well, I, I, would, no... I see it as i see it in some i mean i've seen performers say that to composers or or conductors too like and that's the thing that always baffles me it's like you can't just pre- like at least pretend like it's possible that's all that's all a conductor is asking you to do is at least pretend on yeah. a base level like there's the my my uh one of my teachers when i was growing up used to, you know, he played an orchestra for 30 years or whatever. And, you know, he would, he would be playing, you know, suspended cymbal or xylophone or whatever, and he would be rolling and he would have a red pair and a green pair, both the exact same hardness. And the conductor would be like, oh, can we try something harder? Try the red mallets. And he'd turn around and grab the red mallets and be like, fantastic, you know, and same hardness, you know, whatever. But it's like, (laughs) like, yes, that feels shitty to say like now 30 years later, like that sucks that that is a reality. But 
But it's like at least pretend. Like if you can't even try to to do the next thing. I mean, I remember when we were doing when we were doing medals. Like yeah, it was really hard. And when we were trying, we were trying to get all the notes. As a performer, you feel guilty when you make choices and you leave notes out, right? That guilt. At least for me, I was raised Catholic, and so it's hard for me to shed that that guilt when I'm leaving a note out. When we slowed it down, you were like, "It's weird. I don't I don't hear that B flat." And I was like. Oh, it's because when it's fast, I can't get to it. And you're like, oh, well, leave the other two notes out and play the B flat. That's hinting at the chord change. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's way easier. <laughs> like, instead of playing the A and the C together, I'll just play the B flat and you will get what you want and I can breathe a little easier. And, but it goes, but that's like, again, that's something you, you would not have with your little brush brushed off that dust off that B flat for us if we hadn't slowed it down and had that back and forth, you know, it's just like, mm-hmm. just to highlight that, that, that back and forth. And yeah. the, the other thing too, for me, Dan, I think those are the things that are not in your college orchestration book. Right. Like I can find out the range and like the basic, you know, the range of a player, like, you know, fixed instrument. Sure. I, the range of vibraphone, whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, let's say working with a violinist or a singer and, like I come into this a lot with the the player piano as well. Mm. Like I can know like that stuff, and I can write like I can. If I'm writing a piece for a quartet, I'll break out the book and I'll be like, "All right, I just want to make sure." Like, oh, can you still hear me? Mm-hmm. All right, cool. My my, I'm thinking I'm going to switch after this anecdote. But there's nothing that tells you like this is how many at 120 beats per minute. Uh, the this is the the quickest division that can be played repeatedly. There's nothing that tells me like how fast a player, an average player can play. Like if I look at my orchestration book for trombone, it'll be like, this is how much a student can play. This is how much um, a professional can play. This is the, the known limit of the instrument for virtuosos. And that's super helpful. Cause like if, depending on who I'm writing for, I can work within those bounds. Right. But there's nothing in regards to rhythmic complexity mm. or speed, dexterity, um, which is odd for brass because they do have like this is the largest jump that we would recommend right, at these ranges. Right. And this is, you know, how far this slide can go. But there's nothing that like in the same when I kind of, I, I work a lot with player pianos and I they they lock up and sometimes like I play them so fast that the inner plastic sheaths of the solenoids warp Whoa. and they jam. And I was like, there has to be some sort of data on this. So I contact Yamaha and they're like, we have no idea. We have no idea how fast this could play. They're like, all we know is you can't play all 88 keys at once or it'll destroy the piano. So we like put a safety in. So I had to start going through and being like, all right, well, let's, First, I did it by milliseconds, meaning like, all right, this seems to be uh, as fast as it can get. And then I would notice that the faster it got, obviously, the quieter it got. Mm. And it was a pretty quick, like, exponential drop-off because it's a physical property. It actually needs to, like, raise and lower. Well, well, it's, it's the opposite with a human player. The faster they play, the harder they have to play just to get to and from the note. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, just thinking about it on the player piano made me think about, like, it's, I made it. It's, I thought about you guys a lot, being like, "Man, I really didn't know what I was doing when I was sort of throwing notes with these guys." But there's there's all of this information that you can't learn until you do it with the player, or you are the player yourself. Like, I think the reason why Reich writes so well for percussion is because he's a percussionist. Mm-hmm. And I think and the reason why Terry he worked, Riley he worked in the room with percussionists. Like he wasn't writing yeah. for people and just sending them scores. Like. And I mean, that's one of the great benefits of academia or like being submerged in a process. But, you know, 999 out of a thousand composers are writing for instruments that they've never truly held or played, let alone mastered and known how to get beautiful new sounds out of, especially when I'm trying to do something with extended technique. And I'm sort of like, all right, well, play the weirdest sounds your instrument can make. Let's hear every – I need to hear the entire library of them to see if we're going to use ha- any of them. I have this, like, again, this is I'm, – I'm projecting this is maybe how I hope the collaboration went with uh, Stravinsky and whoever his, his bassoon player friend was. That, like, before <laughs> they did the Rite of Spring, you know, there's that bassoon solo that's, like, super high and crazy. 
And I feel like yeah, they both yeah. got drunk one night, and he's just like, dude, blow into that thing as hard as you can. <laughs> dude, dude, this fucking dude. Everyone shut up, dude. Do it. Listen dude, to it. He did it the other day. It was great. And, like, you know, of course, that's probably not what happened. But I don't know. Like, it's uh, that sort of thing. I, I'm interested. I would love to have been in the room when the Bach cello suites are getting getting written because it's clear to me that – he was working with somebody who a was good at the cello and was learning, was learning like those things get progressively crazier as you go through them. It's because he was like, Hey bro, can you try this out? (laughs) And that whoever this was, would be like, yes, no, cool. This is really hard, but I'll bet in 400 years, this will be fine. You know? (laughs) And here we are. I also want to know like what, what got edited out. Right. Like what was, and what was, what was box mind being like, I wish the cello had eight strings. Like, oh, if there was only a little bit higher or like, oh, it's a little bit. What if, it, what if we just had like one string that just like really droned on? You know, like mm-hmm. the limitations of the, not just the player, but the technology itself right. factor in a lot. Well, but And then every player or everything you add, and that's why I think orchestras are so tricky because like I could have the brass section going insane the whole time, but the violinist will walk off stage because yeah. like they are – they care about their hearing. I'm not used to working with musicians who care about their hearing. So taking that into consideration is, is, is and then I, I know, and look, just, just to like throw some shade for a second, mm-hmm. it tends to be the administration of these organizations more than the artists that are difficult and mm-hmm. where the compromise becomes a battle. Like, I think a lot of it is – I mean this is the one thing I, I've noticed. I think a lot of requests – as a percussionist, you, you send backline to halls all the time. And I think I'm more hyper aware of how high maintenance just being a percussionist by default in terms of the amount of furniture you need on stage. And you need like yeah. – you know, you have a violin soloist come in. There's zero backline. You just need a music stand on stage, right? And so – Yeah, but the backstage is wild. Right. Think about you might be asking for all that stuff on stage, but the green room and the other places got like specialty humidifiers and then dehumidifiers right, right, right. next to them. And as a percussionist, I'm like, I'm lucky if I have like a 15 year old bottle of Poland spring water in the green room, but I have a five octave marimba, you know, like there's a $14,000 yeah. instrument I made you rent. And, um, but, but one of the things I've noted, like David Lang, for example, um, man made the concerto that we did, that he did with us, um, is very mm-hmm. loud and we're right in front of the violin players. And the first couple, I mean, not that we had any terrible experiences with any personalities per se, but it was like, you could tell the vibe as soon as we hit these metal pipes and the whole violin section was like cringing that that killed the vibe. Not that they hated us. It was just like, oh, this is how it's going to be. And so like, I noticed the second time we did it, David Lang would walk on stage and the first thing he would do, like the bass parts were really hard, and, but super important. And he would go up and introduce himself to all the bass players and just say, I'm sorry. That would be his first words out of his mouth to them. And they were like, what? And he, because most players never open the score until they get to the first rehearsal. And they would open it up and be like, oh yeah. man. And he would be like, see, I told you. And, but he, he felt like it was an important thing to interrupt that relationship flow first. And all of a sudden, orchestra started, like, the vibe started getting better. I would walk out, and I would, first thing I would do at rehearsals, introduce myself to the violin players and say, I'm sorry. And they would be like, why? And I'd be like, because you all have hearing play, hearing uh, earplugs on your stands. And they're like, oh. And it and it helps. It's, but a lot of times, those compromises and stuff ahead of time are just logistical. Like, somebody, somebody doesn't want to have a, a whole crew of children screaming backstage because of the logistics of that. It's just a lot of work for somebody. But it's not sure. an it's not an artistic problem they have with you. It's like, oh my god, we're going to have to hire somebody to go find those people. And just to say, like, not that that's that's a good or a bad thing, and that you shouldn't push back on that. But it's just a reality of the orchestra world in particular that there's a whole staff of people who are in charge of dealing with logistics, and they don't know who you are. They no, they're predominantly used to having violin players come in, and it's like, you know, it's just it's a different situation than your studio, you know. I, I worked with one orchestra. I don't want to name any names, but they were one of the orchestras in, in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just, we'll just call it that. Um, and uh, I, they cloistered the musicians in such a way mm. that it was basically impossible to have that relationship. Mm. And during one of the, one of the two rehearsals, um, I, I basically had to interrupt the rehearsal to introduce myself mm. and be like, 
because they started our rehearsal in the middle of a second, uh, in the middle of a larger rehearsal. So like, they just kind of like, I could tell that like the conductor was not aware of the oddness, the battles that we were having with the administration, Mm -hmm. the artistic director who booked us and arranged the collaboration was frustrated by how um, the orchestra admin was handling. And this is right before uh, the unnamed orchestra went on a big lockdown Mm -hmm. and the, they, it was the BSO. I don't know why I'm fucking beating around the bush. It was, and it was a miserable experience Mm. and I was happy with the show. And uh, I talked to several of the performers, you know, during and afterwards. And they're like, just so you know, like we are not, uh, upset. Like they kept telling us like all the players were going to walk out and they're like, we are not going to do that. We have no desire to like, because it wasn't just me and the BSO. It was me and my ensemble and the BSO. Mm. So there were community players yeah. involved and they were like, you're diluting the, the majesty of the BSO. And I was like, well, you originally told me it was going to be 45 musicians. And then you gave me 13 and then you told me it was going to be all strings. And now it's this, small mixed chamber orchestra, which is fine, but I've been working on these 45 person arrangements for a year now, and we're going to use them. And I am going to bring a player piano and I am going to have 18 speakers on stage, which was all approved in the pro. Like everything was just this like whittling down battle. And every time I would talk to the conductor, Nick, who was great, would be like, that sounds awesome. Like, I can't wait. And I could just feel the like, the stage manager's blood boiled being like, how dare you speak to him directly? Mm-hmm. And I was like, why this isn't, it didn't feel like a collaboration. I felt like a, mm-hmm. like a, I don't know. Like yeah. a, well, it's the ecosystem. Like Danny McBride selling cars and he's bound and down. Like I didn't feel like, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't feel yeah. valued. And it made me not want to do collaborations like that. But like Ab who put it together was great. Nick was great. The players were great. Um, and in the end, the experience was, I'm glad it happened because I had never had a bad mm. collaborate, collaborative experience before. And I think I just lucked out. I think a lot of people like try to collaborate and it doesn't work out. And this was a time where it was a real, like, no, we have to stick to our guns. And, you know, members of my crew who've worked on much larger productions and I brought people in specifically for it were like, I don't know if it's like some sort of like you're you're a, it's a Baltimore thing, but like I've never been treated this way. Like this is this is crazy. And the amount of people who apologized on behalf of the organization afterward, I think the tension of the I don't know why the fuck I'm talking about this, but um, well, no, it's an important it really, it's, it's an important discussion. I mean, right now in terms of the way um, people are talking about relationships, I've just been th- I mean we talked about this last time we spoke of like, I'm really worried about the state of humanity in terms of our ability, like just in terms of a skill set, our ability to maintain and develop relationships over a long, no matter who it is you're talking to. Like, um, and there are some ecosystems I think, and cause again, like we've had the, the experience you're describing, I've had to some varying degrees on the spectrum of successful to non-successful, but you know, there's also orchestras like the L.A. Phil, where the vibe is completely different. Like, there's something about the culture there where it doesn't matter what you're playing and who's con- who the guest is, Gustavo Dudamel. Like, there there is a hierarchical structure there that works, but the vibe from Dudamel is like, what I say goes. And what I say is what they say, which is like the artist. Like we had, not that we had complete creative control, but you felt valued, I guess is what I'm saying. And when we think of these ecosystems, whether it be your, you know, 20 person ensemble that you work with, or whether it be so percussion is an ecosystem, the LA Phil is an ecosystem, the the BSO is an ecosystem, how those Mm -hmm. ecosystems communicate just internally um, is, is, is very worrisome to me because it's a shame like that, Cause I don't think the, yeah. I mean, it's a shame that, that like when we're talking about diversity and ensembles and stuff, if you aren't going to be welcomed to that room as like a white guy from Baltimore, like what chance, like what, I guess I just don't see how that, like, I think the discussion is what needs to be way more different for the BSO. Maybe like we need to be facil- yeah. facilitating these things where we value. And again, like 
sometimes people have bad days. Sometimes people make mistakes and say something that they shouldn't say. But if you can tell, like if your members of your ensemble are walking in that room and they're like, what is this lunatic place? Like, yeah, then maybe we shouldn't be so sad that orchestras are dying. You know, like, do we all, is this a place that we want to have? Like what, or just, I'm not advocating for one or the other. What I'm saying is like, I think when you walk in a room as a student, whether it be online SOCI, whether it be Dan Deacon walking, like Purse Hurdler is a great example. Like you, you came into SOCI, nobody knew who you were. We had an ecosystem set up. And if you'd have walked in with your agenda, you would have killed the whole vibe in the room. And what we yeah, got, what we course. got to was something that was way cooler and almost impossible. Like that whole marimba movement, <laughs> like we started off slow as slow as you could possibly get and got it as fast as you could possibly get. Students were freaking out. They were having existential crises of like how, I don't know what it means to make choices about a composer's notes when it's so fast. And you had to sort of, I remember you walking up to some students and being like, it's okay. And then just turning around and walking away. (laughs) It's like, it's like you sort of knighted them a little bit, you know, like let it go. And, but what you were doing, Dan was like building a relationship. You were making them feel valued. Like you were telling them like, this isn't about me or you, it's about us, we're going to be okay. And that's an important, like an orchestra manager can do that too, is what I'm saying. It's tricky, yeah. It's tricky, but it's, you know, you can do it. <laughs> it's not hard, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't know. It is, I do feel like there's a, there is a, a toxic culture that can emerge within an organization. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, like while it sucks that what happened with the BSO and I think will be ongoing, ultimately until they either solve it or it's demise. But it was a little comforting to know that it wasn't unique to us. Cause at the time it was very much like I, you know, I I had people being like this, this person in this organization is abusive. Like Mm -hmm. this is, this is abuse. And I don't know if I can come in tomorrow and be like, I completely understand if you can't. And it was someone that was also, added about six months after everything was in like a new person emerged and like just started like vetoing everything Mm. it it just created this like power dynamic that shouldn't exist in a collaboration like to think about it as an ecosystem all of a sudden this uh evasive species came in and just started Mm. eating everything and there was no there was no way around it and it just sort of it just what could have been like a real highlight in my career. And I mean, I got a lot of emails from people saying that was the best show they'd ever been to. And people being like, I go to the BSO and I had no idea who you were. And I only go because of the, the classical works they do. And I was like, man, I wish I could have had that experience. Cause the whole time I was up there, I was like, I just can't wait to get out of here. And man, that's that, just, that, I, I mean, I, I sorry to interrupt you, but like I do, I want folks to really listen to what you just said. Like Dan Deacon is someone that, uh, you know, I'll say it for a lot of students who are probably, you know, know of you or look up to you. Like you're at the top of, you're at the top of your field. Like you're writing music, you're doing movie scores with Val Kilmer and like, like you're, you ain't fucking around. And if, when I look up, I mean, I look up to you, Dan. I mean, and that's one of the reasons that we, we sought you out. But when you are in another f- part of our field that's also the top of the mountain and you say the words, I can't wait to get out of here, that's terrifying to me. That's really scary. It was, because it was terrifying. Because students, that's what students are looking for. That's what I looked for. It's like, oh, I want to play with orchestras. And if your first experience is, I can't wait to get the fuck out of here, that is a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow once they've gone through all of their schooling all of everything leading up to you've taken orchestra auditions, you've done all these things, you've studied excerpts for four years in school, right? And then you get that job yeah. and you realize that the section percussionist that you're standing next to hates you because of the mute mm-hmm. you use on your snare drum or something asinine like that. Yeah, yeah. Or something they just made up. What's that movie? Is it Whiplash or it's it's a, yeah. it's a jazz drumming movie? I hate that movie. Yeah. It, this was like this yeah. felt like that. Mm-hmm. Like pr- particularly for my stage manager who had to work with the, mm-hmm. the, the had to have the most direct contact with the toxic person at this organization. Um, but it was, it was brutal. And, it, and I'm glad I had seen that movie. Cause I remember before I saw it, I saw a bunch of drummers 
and other musicians being like, this is not what music is about. Like, this is insane. Anybody who thinks watching this is the equivalent of like watching Rocky or like a sports movie, like this is not, this is, this is a movie of abuse and trauma and like someone who's devoid of love for what they do and someone pulling that love out of another person. This is a sad tragedy that last scene, even though he might be playing, you know, a great solo, they're doing it out of spite. Like that is not what this is about at all. And I saw the movie and I was like, yeah, this is ridiculous. Um, there's nothing at all, but my music school experience. was. Like. <laughs> um, yeah. But then I w- was doing the show and I was like, holy shit. Like this is, there, there are people who just have, like in any, any workplace can be toxic. Mm-hmm. Any workplace can have people who are obsessed with power or obsessed with, um, you know, their biases enter into it. And I had never really encountered it at that level before. Like you see it in festivals sometimes or when celebrities involved and people are cloistered away. But this was just like a level of. Well, there's there's something interesting that I mean, it's something I. Can you bleep out every time I mention the name of the orchestra? <laughs> Dan, it's been in the newspapers. I don't think you're saying anything that's like, <laughs> you know, there, I think they're, and listen, n- neither one of us, just to be clear, I'm not reading anything into what you're saying is like, you wish ill will on anybody. Like, this is just an experience no, you've had. So anything, I hope that the organization solves these issues. Right. Like, well, I live like 200 feet away from the fucking place. I'd love to be able to go there and feel anything besides like, oh, uh, this is where I had that horrible three months. Well, I had a, I mean, I had this experience as a student where I was in an orchestra rehearsal and, you know, my first gig actually as a student playing with the Akron Symphony Orchestra. And it was a similar experience where, you know, all of a sudden I'm on a union gig and there's a clock on stage. Like the clock is right beside the conductor facing the orchestra, like a big clock taped to a stand. Mm -hmm. I was like, like, and what that just the symbology of that or the symbolism of that is like this end time our stop time is as important as whatever this conductor says. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then, God damn it, right as that clock hit that one o'clock mark, people, like, we were, we were making sound. We were playing. People just started packing up their instruments while the conductor was conducting. And it just kind of faded out, and the conductor walked off stage. And I was like, what in the hell was that? Like, I have never yeah. been, like, I'm a... Not that I like. Not that I had the feeling I want to get out of here. I was like, "Whoa, this is weird." Because I had just been in Trinidad, where you rehearse from eight p.m. till three in the morning. There's no official break. If you want a beer, you go get a beer. And if you're away from your instrument for too long, people notice and they call you back. Like there's a weird <laughs> accountability there, and nobody complains. And but when you set up a situation, I do have to say I think some of the union rules are good and in place for. Well, I'm not saying that it, that an orchestra should be rehearsing from eight till three p.m. But <laughs> or three a three a.m. But should there be some? Should we talk about what it means to be in the throes of making really great music? And like, is it okay that that we are that somebody has the power to walk on stage who's not a musician and just shut the whole thing down? Like, what what does that but mean? I, 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 the reason why I think it's there and it is important is because you do get the fucking person who thinks they're, um, you know, the reincarnate of Mahler and gets up there and is like, we're going to rehearse until totally. it's done. And but then, you also and get then people can't go home. You know what I mean? Like, but so then I you... think those protections are in place and they have to be rigid. And I think they came from the place of a previous abuse of power. But now I do think it's like, I think what, what I... times they, yeah, what I'm saying is that I think that power is getting abused now. Like, I think the rever- – like, I agree. It has ab- – what it's done is it's abdicated every member of the ensemble from the responsibility of having to care about how much time you're in the room. Somebody else is going to come in and tell you when you can leave, and then you're not responsible for it. It doesn't matter. Like, there's no weight on you to make what's happening better or to say, you know what? If we just stuck around for five more minutes, we can get this, and then we'll go. Like – that discussion just isn't even possible because of the fear of a Mahler-esque, like, oh, that fear, like, we might be kept yeah. here. It's like, okay, okay, hold on a second. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is not, like, this sucks. We're leaving the room. This yeah. blows. And, Dan, you've, you haven't even met the composer. We've read, we literally sight-read his music, his or her music, for 20 minutes. That's it? Like, we can't talk about that? Like, that, I think, is, like, culturally, when that, you spread that out over 40 or 50 years... 
think, no, it, I think it, those chickens are coming home to roost. You know? and, and like the way that, I don't know, there was so many crazy things that didn't make any sense. Like our rehearsals were on days where like we'd have to entirely clear the stage for another thing. Mm-hmm. And then like, but there was a rehearsal scheduled on the day of our show that like needed the entire stage cleared. And I was like, can we just swap these? And they're like, no, no. And I was like, you can't email. Wouldn't everyone rather? It would be easier for everyone. Like, and they're like, no, no, we couldn't even begin to inquire about something as absurd as that. And I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Like, this is, this is preposterous. There's a whole, and, there's a whole uh, series of, there's just, just a chain. There is a, there's a chain of accountability where, it's like when you get somebody on the on the phone for customer service and you you can just keep saying send me to your supervisor send me to your super like that's what it feels like and i again i participate in the system i'm in it i by and large have had good experiences um but i do think it's worth like we should at least be able to have the conversation of like what does it mean to have a relationship with like if we, if we can't have that then i think orchestra should stop talking about outreach quite frankly. I think every ensemble should stop talking about outreach if they're not willing to sit down and have the conversation about what it means to build a relationship with the people you're working with. And um, Agreed. Well, if it, they, they did end this series right after the... Uh, oh, sorry, I didn't mute. Should have muted. Should have right. muted. Um, well, Dan, let's. I want to um, switch, switch course here before we wrap up. You're, you're somebody, too, that I... We, you are the first music I've played on stage where somebody walked out of the room, um, and I, it was Ghostbuster Cook, and um, it was during. Can you hear me? Okay, buddy. There you are. Nope. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Sorry these these things died last night. That's all right. And uh, well. Quick story, quick story, while I get this uh, mic working. All right, what is the internal sound? Is a sapphire. Can you talk a little bit, Josh? Hey, yo, hey, yo. Dan Deacon. No, that Dan is Deacon. Not coming out of what it should be. Dan Deacon. Dan Deacon knows technology. Let's speaker. Dan Deacon sap- is a techno- there we go. technological there we go. master. I raked the leaves last night for the first time in uh, all year. Mm-hmm. And I. I had these earbuds in listening to an uh, audiobook while I was doing it. And I started talking to my neighbors and I took them out and I couldn't find them. Uh-oh. I was worried I like sucked them up into the leaf vacuum that slash mulcher mm-hmm. thing that I was like looked like John Candy using. Like I, love, I love domesticated Dan. I'm a big fan of this. Uh, uh, it was like a Charlie Chaplin routine, me trying to get this thing to suck up all these leaves. Um, well, but anyway, these died, so I'm sorry. I thought I'd right. charge them, but um, I did I have one final question for you, and it, it it's not going to sound... It's about the leaf blower mulcher, right? No. It's about uh, your piece, <laughs> Bottles, um, that you wrote for us uh, as mm-hmm. part of Ghostbuster Cook as well. But it also, it was a moment when I think of, like, a recalibration of what I feel a relationship with an audience can or, sh- can or can't be, um, was the moment in Bottles where we poked holes and it just I know where this is going for yeah, 12 yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah. And there was, a, there was a person who stood up in the back of the hall after about nine minutes of the bottles draining and said, fuck this, and stormed out of the room. And yeah. that was the first time anybody ever walked out of a concert of So Percussions. And that again, you knew of. That, well, that I knew of, true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, that, but just to sort of bring it back around to uh, what I said up front about being afraid of Sosi or having insecurity, that was a big moment of insecurity for me as an artist, and I think for So too, of like, man, did we just did we just alienate our audience? Like, that question came across our mind. I was just like, well, I don't think we did because Dan, that's, we know Dan. Dan's a good person. His music is great. His intentions are clear. We like So no, I don't think that was our intention, but intentions don't always equal you know, what people's responses are all the time. And I'm just curious, like that moment for me was a moment of like, Oh man, but you were sort of like, yeah, well that's what happens. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I was was pretty psyched. You were the, you, you were that first sort of grenade in our ecosystem of like, you like, you chucked it and then you were like, yep, have fun fellas, you know? And, and um, I'm just kind of curious from your standpoint, what, what do you think about like feet when you're, when you're performing stuff and people have a strong reaction like that? What is what are your thoughts that go through your head? Um, I try to remember that, like, even on the positive side, that those are outliers. Like mm. that person that's like 
I don't know the person who is like sitting in their chair, like going like, fuck yes. <laughs> As opposed to the guy who got up and said, fuck this. And I remember having anxiety about that same section when we did it at the Barbican on mm-hmm. that, uh, for that Reich night or whatever. Yeah. But, um, that's what got the best review. Like in the garden, they were like, and then this, cause I remember we were stressed cause it wasn't spraying. Mm-hmm. Like it was dripping more, and they were like, "Oh, and the drips filled the hall as if it were a rainforest of Mountain Dew." Or something. Like, I can't remember. <laughs> I was just sort of like, "Wow, this is now where I thought this review was going to go." <laughs> yeah. But um, I don't know. You kind of have to take those risks, and like the, the and the, the goal is never to enrage anyone. Like mm-hmm. I don't think Lamont Young and Terry Riley were trying to enrage people, and they're like experimental fluxus style pieces i think certain fluxus composers were definitely trying to enrage people and that's never my goal or intent but i think if you're going to try to elicit uh sheer euphoria of course someone could go the other way and take it as as you know anger and Mm -hmm. see malice in it like we weren't trying to troll the audience in sitting there if anything it was like a little meditation and we were using a different sense entirely like the smell that filled the room. Mm. I remember being like something we didn't really think of until we actually started poking holes in the bottles. When you mix grape soda, orange soda, RC Cola, Pepsi, Mountain Dew, Sprite, the smell is like, it makes your eyes water. Like (laughs) you smell it, you smell it in your eyes before you do your nose. It's a very (laughs) strange feeling. But it was also to reset the tone between the, uh, the bottles section and the metal section. Mm -hmm. So, and it was of indeterminate length. It was an experiment. It could have lasted 30 seconds like it did in the Barbican, or it could have lasted 12 minutes like it did at, uh, was that part of a static? Yes, at Merkin. Yeah, at, at Merkin. So, in the same way, like when we did um, Take a Deep Breath mm-hmm. uh, at Zenko, I was really like, oh my God, are people going to take this seriously? And then the Alex Ross review being like, well, since it said end the press, I had to do it. And I was like, never before have I been so pleased with my notes and a text-based score than being yeah. like, I should include the press as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there were people there who didn't. They were like, what am I doing? Why am I changing my seat? The same way that, like, you know, when Nam June Pike cut off John Cage's tie... John Cage was like, what have I done? I've created a horrible monster called Fluxism. Mm-hmm. It just, I don't know. It, it comes into turf with the experiment. Like, I don't want to think about it so much as your grenade, as a uh, confetti. Some people don't <laughs> want to get covered in confetti. And well, I, didn't say what, like, oh. I didn't say I didn't say what was in the grenade. I just said it was a grenade. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's, there's a, a risk involved in any, the whole point of experimental music is you don't, know the outcome of the experiment and you can rehearse it a, a ton but it's never truly in the lab until it's on stage and that's the only time like i did another piece for um another static series and i had the click track blasting through the pa and that experiment failed and i'm glad i did it i learned a lot from it but i should have just had either a drummer or lost the click or made one person the click a la NC, but it just fatigued. Mm-hmm. And it was fine in rehearsal because it was like we weren't really listening to it as a musical element. We had forgotten what it would have been like to be someone not playing. Mm-hmm. And then the, the moment it started up in the concert hall, I was like, this is going to be rough. And it was. And Judd hasn't had me, had me back since. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> but you, you learn from those mistakes. That's what I like about being an experimental music. Even in my pop music, like I know how the songs go. I know how to play them. The audience interaction stuff, I don't know how that's going to go. I like trying new things out. I like it's not an experiment unless it can fail. And if it can't fail, then it's like I'm just putting on the same play again and again and again. Well, I'd and love, I like taking I would, these chances. I, it's uh, This feels like a, a good point to sort of start wrapping up this conversation because I, it's your, your use of experimentation. I feel you're somebody who always, you, you get a plan just good enough to the point where you're like, okay, I can go in the ring now. And then you start to make decisions after you get punched in the face. Like it's the Mike, the Mike Tyson quote, like everybody has a plan until they get hit in the face. And like, <laughs> like, and I say that in a good, like, not that you walk into situations ignorant, but like you walk into them 
armed with just enough to actually like this is your, the way you're going to learn is like to know what it is that you can't hold on to after you get punched in the face because that's the stuff you didn't need anyway. And and I can't I can't sit I can sit here and you know speculate on all the possible scenarios and every situation that might occur. And I think most of them are going to be completely worthless. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the nature of improvising. And you can improvise in ways that aren't just the creation of taking a sound out of an instrument, but the whole process can be improvisation. Mm-hmm. Like, and like the, the the whole experience with the BSO, I'm really glad it happened. Mm-hmm. I would I would work with them again. Um, they will definitely not work with me, most likely, mm-hmm. especially since all the people who were my champions there now at Carnegie. Uh, <laughs> Time to start emailing so. Carnegie, Dan. <laughs> yeah. you already, you've already been there. You've already played there. Already been. I'd love to go back. Well, um, um, Anyway, but yeah, the whole process is improvisation. You want to go into an improv feeling as skilled as you can be, but it's not like let me go to the page in the rule book. Uh, this happens. I do this. Like it has to be thinking on your feet. And I think that's what the whole world is right now. Every, I, I my, I'm, I know somebody who works high up at NASA mm-hmm. and they're constantly, you know, it's about the James Webb telescope. And they're like, we have pandemic protocols and they're all thrown out the window now. Like, all of these things that we're doing weren't in it, and for better or worse, we're basically, uh, you know, I'm glad we have that knowledge, but we're improvising. And that's what everyone is doing. Everyone, the school boards are like, are we going to completely change how public school works? Is it going to go to a semesterized system? Are people only going to take one class at a time? Are certain courses going to be in the school and not? Everyone's making it up as they go along. And the debate has to end at some point and you have to try it and no one knows how it's going to come out. And that is a beautiful thing. Yeah, it can be, I, I think it's like, it's the thing I think we were, I was trying to acknowledge up front is like, in which I think you articulated, which is to try to use the weakness or your fear as like a superpower. Like the, the quicker you can turn that fear into the fear of the unknown into like, this is going to be my shield. Like everybody else is doing the same thing. Let's try to see it as a positive and, and, you know, act like firemen. If, if we get there and the door not is hot, don't grab it. Don't go through that door. Yeah. Find another door. Like, that's kind of where we're at. We're not stockbrokers anymore. We have to be a little better at being firemen and, and seeing the reality in front of us and then make a good decision and go. Um, and, well, Dan, I, I appreciate your time and I, I appreciate the conversation. I think this will, for folks uh, coming to SOCI this year, I know it will be nice for me to hear this again um, to, <laughs> to assuage whatever anxiety builds up over the next two weeks. Um, well, and that's I, good to hear. I think we should um, we should do redo take a breath for Zoom and um, and and how have... I've been working on a Zoom version. Have you? Okay, um, awesome. Yeah, I because so, a lot of it is about interaction and moving around a space, mm-hmm. and I think there's a way to do that with. Uh, I, I, I'm close. I'm close. I don't know if I'm there yet. Well, if you want some guinea pigs, Dan, you know where to find us. Um, All right, I will hit you up for sure. Here. Where All does right. it run? Uh, it's July 12th through – it's two weeks, so July 12th through the 26th, I think. All right, cool. I'll so, put that down in my calendar. I'll, one day you might get an email being like, can we uh, – can I get 20 minutes today? Uh, and the answer will be yes. So, Dan, just right. whenever you send that email, we're here. All right. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Be hey, well. Stay Josh, safe. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Have man. a good one, man. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com, L-I-Q-U-I-D-R-U-M.com, down in Waco, Texas. Hilarious percussion videos, awesome merch, good educational content. Check it out, liquiddrum.com. Uh, also, uh, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle makes and builds uh, all of the steel drums that I perform and play on. And finally, uh, if you want to learn more about the pan scene in Brooklyn, or just pan in general, check out paninmotion.com. Um, a bunch of my good friends, Ken Williams, uh, amongst others, run an amazing organization. Check them out. All right. Hope you're all doing well. Take care. Talk to you soon.